0: Disney Plus, Hulu, and ESPN Plus. Woo! This fall, the Disney bundle has all the
1: action.
2: Holy smokes!
1: Watch live NFL and college football games on ESPN Plus. On Disney Plus, there's Loki season two. It's on its way. And Ahsoka. Buckle up. And on Hulu, you can watch The Boogeyman and Welcome to Rexa. Oh my God, the expectation! All of these and more streaming this fall with the Disney bundle. Blackouts and restrictions apply.
3: 18 plus only. Access content from each service separately. Offer valid for eligible subscribers only. Terms apply. Expressing your love can look many different ways, and with the right jewelry gift from Blue Nile, it can truly sparkle. Blue Nile's collection of classic diamond jewelry makes for the kind of gift that speaks volumes without saying a single word. Or switch things up with a sapphire piece sure to spark conversation. Either way, Blue Nile's diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Express yourself with Blue Nile, the original online jeweler, at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
1: I've been in dogs since 1991. We breed dogs that we want to train. I was out here in western Nebraska riding Harleys and training dogs. I don't sugarcoat anything, and if you don't like it, tough.
0: Hello, thank you for tuning in again today. This is episode 7 of the Flatlander Kennel podcast with chris Jobin. my name is elliot snyder i'm here with chris and i'm gonna turn it right over to him he's gonna tell you what we have in store for you tonight he lined up another our second really fantastic guest uh so chris how's it going today hi elliot how are you doing i'm doing pretty good i don't know if you heard about the georgie injury saga i'll have to tell you about that sometime
1: I, I heard about um, and I and everybody. I apologize if the sound isn't very good. And I got home from the Grand and my winter trip and unpacked my stuff. And in my infinite wisdom, I have lost my microphone. I put it away, and I, I have no idea where. Well, I've scoured the house. I can't find it. So I apologize if the sound isn't the greatest. But um, yeah, we'll be all right. No, we're we're clicking along. You know, we got home from the Grand and. In our winter trip, and we ran a couple of the guys that ran a couple of h r c tests up in this region and I'm getting ready to hit master this coming weekend about every weekend for who knows how long we're gonna to try to qualify probably thirty dogs or so for the master nationals so we gotta we gotta get after it
0: when is the master nationals
1: um it's at the end of October it's the grand is in October then the end of October, but um the grand we got home from the grand we made our well, we got a couple dogs that need some points um, to get their Grand Hunter Retriever Champion title, but they've got their two passes. We've got Charlie, who's owned by, owned by Pamela um, Hassel. She has just turned three. She's got her second pass. She needs a couple points. And then <clears throat> we got Blitz, who's owned by Bill Maggart, who's got two passes but needs a couple points. So that'll be our 52nd Grand Hunter Retriever Champion out of the kennel. And then... Um, We also passed um, Ozzy, owned by Jason Thompson, Um, and I'm drawing a blank. Flash, Flash passed for his fifth time, um, Georgie's daddy. And then um, Maisie, a real young dog, um, owned by Brandon Kirsch, um, she passed. Her first attempt, she's just a baby. She went through it on twos, which she did a fantastic job. And um, I know I'm missing one. Um, Anyway, we'll come up with it later. I know I'm missing. How how many did
0: you pass? Was it six? Six.
1: I passed six. Yeah. How how did you uh, feel
0: about the whole? How you feel about the performance? Uh, it,
1: it was. We were doing pretty dang well, until the four series. We ran. I I can't remember the series. It's called Avery. I think it was Avery Water. And I'm gonna tell you that eight-hour lunch, a whole entire flight, it, it it got us bad along with everybody else that ran it. But what about it, it, it was
0: was so rough?
1: It, uh, it was just the two left marks were real tough. He had a long go bird, and then he had a real short short left check down bird, and and then we had a long right bird in the water. And I, you know, we we handled on every single mark. I lost one of my best dogs on the blind. Um, we did, you know, if it could happen, it happened. And then, you know, no wind, no nothing. It was just a really, really hard, hard series. I mean, it was it was well put together, very hard. You know, judged judged pretty tight. You know, all those things. And and it was just a tough. It was a tough deal. Um, it, it's hard to explain, but it was we. I mean, we went in there kicking butt and taking names. And um, and it just crunched me. I lost. I think I went in there with twelve dogs. Mm-hmm. I think it came out with six mm. so, on I that one series. All in that series, yes. Wow. I know who the other one was. Charlie or Red Red Manning was the other one that passed. Um, and he's a flash son. So Georgie's brother Red passed. Nice. Yeah. So that was it. Was this. Second attempt to the grand. He went through. He did, a, he did a fabulous job. So we had, you know, Flash passed. We had Ozzy. We had Maisie. We had Red um, Blitz and Charlie. So um, we had six passes, and we were really happy with those six passes. But I, I really thought going into the fourth, I knew, I, I knew the fourth was tough. I really, really knew it. But I had some really good dogs. In there on twos, perfect scores, and I didn't even leave with those. So it, we went in with fifty some dogs in our flight, and we left with twenty two, something like that out of the whole flight. So
0: wow, that yeah. was the day.
1: Yeah, it was it was brutal, but we got them all through, and and um, we we're happy to get our fifth pass on Flash. That was fun, and and, and the first passes on you know Red Maging those dogs. But um, the boys have been home running HRC. They've ran Platte Valley HRC and Great Plains HRC. Um, Andrew and Ryan have, and they've accumulated 65 passes in those two tests. Fantastic. With, with um, 16 titles. That's so great. Either, each either HR titles or HRCH titles. So, and like I said, we're getting ready to hit the hit the master circuit too as well. So yeah, busy, well, busy.
0: Well, that's. That's fantastic. Sounds like you guys are uh, really having a, a good spring into summer here.
1: Yeah, we're it, we're clicking along pretty good. You know, we got some really nice young dogs coming up that we're excited about for sure. So tell me about Georgie's little injury. I know she cut her leg right before Great Plains. Did she do something different?
0: She did. She, um, so she had stitches in for like 10 days and I went and got her stitches pulled and she was given full clearance to train. So I went right from the vet to train her. And I'm looking back, I'm thinking, well, was that stupid? I don't know. The the He said 100% full clearance and everything. And in that training session, I was circling around a healer, and all of a sudden she yelped and pulled her leg up. And so I stopped everything. And ever since then, the area of that sore is so sensitive to the touch that you run your finger on it, and all of a sudden she's in excruciating pain. The vet thinks it's um, inflamed tendon is what he thinks. But quite honestly, I don't think he's very sure what it is, but it's been eight days now. It's a little less sore and she doesn't Mm -hmm. hardly limp, but you can see she's not putting full pressure on that back on that back foot. And so we're just resting her. I'm not I'm not sure what it is.
1: Yeah, I mean. That's I've never really had. Once they usually heal up from injury like that, they're usually pretty good to go. Like unless it's said, like it's an inflamed tendon, ligament, something like that.
0: But the thing is, she had zero soreness in that area the entire time she had stitches. She had zero soreness when he pulled them out. I've got video of him pushing on it and everything, and and she had a great training session. And then all of a sudden, I actually have it on video. I made a video of the whole training um event she's just she steps and she y- yelps it's like at one point on one moment it just something just click huh and so i don't know i've had to scratch three days of hunt tests and i don't mind doing that i just don't want this to be some kind of weird lingering thing
1: yeah uh, she'll probably be all right i'm sure if it keeps lingering you may want to take her someplace but yeah um a specialist but um, oh another thing we got going on I forgot to say I wanted to mention is we're going to have a seminar here um, it's going to be a two-day seminar on June 17th and 18th it's a handling seminar and basically what we're going to do is I'm going to do a couple setups a day and our handler teams are already full there's 15 handler teams from the season level up and we're we're wanting as many observers as we possibly can and we're just going to run setups, and I'm going to critique dogs, I'm going to run some setups, and and we're going to do land and water, and we're going to do all kinds of stuff. And um, Boomtown HRC out of Wyoming is the one sponsoring it, and if you want to get in on it as an observer, we'd love to have you. It's on huntsecretary.com under the all events, and you can sign up there. Or it, I don't, I think it closes like June 2nd or something like that, and if... After it closes, you can contact me or Jason. We can we can get you into it too. But it should be really good. Um, we've done it a few times here at the kennel. It's always been um, highly well received, and everybody always has has a good time. So we're doing we're doing that too, amongst other things.
0: Yeah, everyone. So come on out to that. I'm gonna be up there at the event too, trying to get some video yep. and. And coaching and, and get the knowledge from the seminar, but also be running some videos. So that'd be a great for everyone. Hopefully, to hopefully Georgie's
1: on. Georgie's healed up and you can train with us a couple of days before that seminar.
0: Yeah. If she's healed up, I'll be out there that Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. If she's not, then I'll show up on Friday. I gotcha. Cool. Yeah. Cool. So, but that's three weeks out. So if she's not healed up by then, I'm going to be concerned.
1: Yeah, that's, that's quite a ways, but um, she didn't hurt her knee or anything. Did she?
0: No. Uh uh-uh. uh. Huh. It's right there on her foot, right below the little elbow of the I don't know what what it's called. That little yeah, yeah. joint of the hawk or area or whatever it yeah, is. Yeah, it's right below that is
1: is where it is. So So she's she's faking an injury. She doesn't want to train.
0: Yeah, I can tell you that's not true. She's depressed <laughs> and pissed off is what she is. <laughs> oh, I'll
1: bet. I'll bet. I'll bet. She but looks that, at me
0: when I get home because you know, she wants to run. She doesn't care. So she gives me that look I'm like, what are we doing? Oh
1: yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. But we have a – that's basically what's going on at the kennel. We're just busy, busy going, you know, running HRC and AKC and, and getting the dogs qualified and trying to get dogs entitled. But we we're, we have a really special guest with us tonight, Um a good friend of mine I've known for a long time. Everybody calls him like the Purina Man and they all know him as the Perina Man. But we're gonna have Ray Voigt join us tonight. And and everybody in the dog world that's been in the dog world for a while knows who Ray is and knows his accomplishments and, and knows what he's done in his life. And um I'm not gonna get into all that. I'm gonna let him tell me that, tell us all that. But the younger crowd, um, he, he's a Purina he works for Purina right now. He you'll see him in hunt tests and field trials, and he runs around. But the younger the younger crowd may not know um, who Ray Voight is, and you will soon learn from listening to this. This guy is a guru. He was he worked for Mike Lardy for a long time. He moved around a little bit, and he knows a lot of about a lot. So what we're going to do? We're going to have two back-to-back episodes here, and we are going to do. Uh, we're going to talk about marking all marking the first episode. How to build a marking dog and philosophies and theories on marking. In the episode, next episode, we're going to do a question and answer from all of our listeners that have signed up and, and did questions on our Facebook page. And we me and him are going to sit down. We're just going to just like we did with me and Chris, and we're just going to talk, you know, question and answer. And and, and we're very real excited to have him on there. So I'm gonna I'm gonna text him to jump on here real quick. So. All
0: right, so um, we will take a real quick break, and we will be right back on here right. with Ray Voigt.
2: After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by big wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I first heard that Mint Mobile offers premium wireless starting at just 15 bucks a month, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them and using their service, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they're the first company to sell wireless service online only. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. For anyone who hates their phone bill, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. I was hesitant about having to get a new phone and a new phone number, but with Mint... You can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone and your same phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Mint Mobile gives you the best rate whether you're buying for one or for a family, and at Mint, families start at two lines. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Switch to Mint Mobile and get premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month to get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and to get the plan shipped to your door for free go to mintmobile.com/waypoint that is mintmobile.com/waypoint cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com/waypoint
3: This episode is brought to you by Chevrolet now's your chance to support a team with real grit The Chevy ZR2 family of off-road trucks. The first ever Silverado HD ZR2 joins the all-new Colorado ZR2 and the Silverado ZR2 for a commanding lineup of off-road ready trucks. Equipped to take on anything this season throws their way. Visit Chevy.com to learn more.
1: Hi everybody. Hey, Chris and Elliot are back. We finally got our good friend Ray Voigt on here, and a lot of you guys know him as the Perina Man, running around hunt tests and field trials. But a lot of the people um, may or may not know his story. It's it's really really cool and where he came from and who he worked for and how he became that person. But Ray, thanks for joining us. Oh,
3: you're welcome. Thanks for
1: having me. Great. I'm surprised you're home tonight to do this.
3: Well, it's uh, it's I've been on the road for. I was gone for about the last twelve days, and I'm home this week, so timing worked out perfectly. And then I head out again Tuesday, so uh, you caught me on a good yeah. week.
1: <laughs> this is exactly what you want to do, I'm sure. So, so everybody, tell us a little bit about yourself, Ray. Um, you know, kind of how you got. How long have you been in dogs? Kind of how you started. Um, how, how, how you got in the foot in with Mike and, and and those sort of things. We'd love to, there's a lot of people out there that know the story, but a lot of our younger listeners may not know all this and, and, you know, they may have heard of Mike Lardy, but they didn't know, you know, the support staff and the people that helped him build who he was. So I'd really like to hear all that. Um, so yeah, I was,
3: um, I started, I got my first dog when I was 14 years old. Uh, found a dog in the Minneapolis paper, um, actually out of uh, a field champion uh, with uh, Charlie and Yvonne Hayes' gunstock breeding uh, from Minnesota. And uh, found this puppy in the paper, a family friend that had. Uh, I'd been throwing some bumpers for and going out and training to kind of see it, what it was all about. Uh, he, I couldn't drive, so he actually drove to Minneapolis and picked the puppy up for me. And uh, he started showing me how to do stuff. He' would say you know here's how you teach obedience here's how you do hold here's how you do fetch you know in and, and each step of the way he would uh, when I'd kind of get it where I thought it was good I'd call him and he'd come and look at it and say okay you can move on to the next step and just kind of fell in love with it started running some hunt tests when I was 15 uh, my mom used to i by that point I had a I had a permit but I couldn't get a hotel room and I couldn't drive by myself so My mom owned her own business, so she would ride along with me and sit in the truck and read books during the hunt tests and kind of went from there to field trials and uh, ended up going to one of Mike Mike Lardy's seminars. And uh, that was, uh, I think, between my junior and senior year in high school and just couldn't think of anything else I wanted to do, so I started bugging him about a job. And uh, actually, after I graduated, I went down south I lived with Dave Smith and threw birds for a winter trip, had a puppy. We would train in the evenings and throw for the, you know, the big throw for the truck all day and just try to watch and learn as much as I could. Um, Then I had a little, I worked for Rick Stosky for a little while and Andy Attar for a while. And then uh, Mike had a full-time position open up and I was there for about 15 years. And I've been with Perina for about three now. So yeah, I've been, uh, involved with dogs for a long time
1: wow that, that's that's quite the story and, and, and you know everybody listening that's how you get into the dog world you you help throw birds you you just help and do here and then then eventually you you, kept, you hope to catch on someplace but that is that is how to do it right there to be honest with you
3: yeah i mean i was fortunate i i was uh one of the first things that the family friend of ours said is if you want to you want to do this, try to get with the best people you can and learn from them. And I guess, uh, kind of, you know, took that to heart being able to work with the guys I did and especially Mike for all those years. And just, uh, I mean, I was fortunate. I, you know, the just, I mean, lucky to have the caliber dogs we did, the clients we did have the support of, of Mike and being able to run around and do trials and run nationals and, uh, I guess the rest is history. That's crazy.
1: That's a little bit different than it's happening nowadays, where you get a started title and you're a pro by a, get a Facebook page and a trailer. You did it right. <laughs> you need a hat too. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. I forgot. You gotta have a hat. I forgot a hat. Hat, Facebook page, Instagram, dog trailer. You're ready to roll. But um, let's let I got. I gotta ask a question. Of all the dogs. That you've seen, whether you're at Rick's or Andy's or Mike's or any of those places, what give me your probably the if in your opinion the best one that you saw or been around day in and day out. Yeah, you know, that You were around, you you saw a lot of the legends, and you know now they're they're in second, third generations of most guys' pedigrees. So I want I'd love to hear that. You know, that's a really tough question, and it's one that I
3: get asked a lot. And you think I would have a uh, kind of have a stock answer by now but they're really i mean there's some of them that were better at certain things than others i mean just overall um you know nfc mickey uh windy cities mighty mouse he was hard to beat just he didn't have he just didn't have a hole in anything you know i mean he was cooperative he could mark he would get in the water he'd do anything you asked him to um a dog that's in the hall of fame, uh, great buns of fire, Jerry Lee. She was, uh, mm-hmm. she was pretty spectacular. Um, she just, she, same thing, just, she could do anything. Um, Roxy McBunn, you know, I mean, it's easy to name all the national champions, but I mean, those dogs, really, they were great for a reason. And, and Grady, uh, you know, a lot of people have Grady in their pedigree. And, he had, uh, he was derailed a lot by some injuries, but, um, just pure heart and desire. And it's just, it's hard to be, it's be hard to put anybody above him for that.
1: Yeah. Was talk about Grady. Was he, was he a, a, a softer, more sensitive dog or was he more of a hard charging or was he a thinker? What? Cause I've trained a lot of Grady puppies Not so much anymore now because now it's, you know, he's in the second, third generation. But uh, back in the day, we trained a lot of gravy puppies. And one thing they all could do is they all could mark. And, but they're all just kind of a little bit sensitive on the sensitive side. I did see one male who wasn't like that. But was he a little bit like that or did that, where do you think that came from? He
3: was a little bit like that. I mean, so, you know, sensitive, I think. I think sensitive and soft are two different things. I think I agree you with know, I think sensitive. Yeah. He he didn't take a lot of correction to change his behavior. He didn't want to, He didn't. He wanted not to get in trouble more than anything. But so I would say he's a little sensitive. I mean, he ran on a probably only on a level three on the Garmin collars. But he, I mean, he was also when you say hard chart. I mean, he he ran like he would go through a brick wall if he thought the bird was on the other side of it. So that little bit of sensitivity yeah, yeah. didn't in any any way, shape, or form slow him down or make him where you'd look at him and think, oh, maybe he's overthinking something or he's a little nervous or I mean, he was uh, you know balls to the wall on everything. I mean, he'd kick dirt in your face on a water yeah, bottle.
1: How- yeah, and that's how all all of our grady dogs that we've trained you know they all love to do it and they ran hard and they loved it but you had to you know you couldn't be one of them guys that just pushed the button and then react thought about what you did later you had to really kind of think about that because you may pay for it down the road i i used to own a dog named tweety it was one of the best ones i ever touched and she was a grand retriever champion mh dog and she was gizmo's litter maker okay. yep. sister and it was kind of cool um Gizmo, after he won the national open, was getting he was getting trucked back across the by, across the country by Edgar, and um, Edgar had to stop here to get a puppy from us and, and and keep going. But he had Gizmo with him, and so at that time we put Gizmo and Tweety, brother and sister, in our kennel and took pictures with him and. It was hilarious. Gizmo was on the food table. He jumping on the Ranger. He was all over the place and Tweed's like, "What the hell is wrong with it?" They were complete opposites, but boy, that was a that was a Grady Keno Cali litter, and that was a spectacular breeding. Oh Holy yeah, he, uh, Gizmo but, uh,
3: Gizmo wasn't afraid of much either. He was kind of a you know he'd get it, it, he was a take the bird and let me go kind of dog, and man, he could he could mark. And I remember that I remember oh, yeah. that trip. We had a dog on our way back to Georgia and that's with Edgar, that same national, we had a dog named turbo he had, and I f- actually finished three nationals in a row with him during that stretch when Gizmo won.
1: Ooh. Well, he had some good dogs hauling him back. That was, that's just, and that, that's stuff that, you know, people don't get to hear about a lot. Cause you know, I, you know, the last thing we want to do a lot of times when we go out and we want to talk dogs and stuff, but I, now I have you on the air, I'm going to pick your brain and, and you can't go anywhere. <laughs> I'm here. Okay, Let, let's let's do this. Let's um, what I'd like to talk about um tonight is we're going to do a couple different installments with 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 Ray. We're going to do a we're going to talk about marking in this first episode. In the second episode, we're going to answer a bunch of questions that came up on our Facebook page. But let's let's talk marking, how to build a marking dog. You know the importance of marking. Everything about marking um, within about the next forty-five minutes or so. But um, what do you think? Do you think a, a true, really, really good marking dog? Do you think that's born or built?
3: Well, I think you can have both. Um, I do think that there some dogs just have a are born with a innate ability to find birds better than others. They get to them easier. They get to them quicker. They find them once they get there. I mean, I think that is a pure marking. I think is a is a born talent, but I think you can build, I think you can build a really good dog. That's going to, um, they can mark, I don't, hard to say just as well, but it would be, you know, it would be just, they would be just as competitive and week in and week out, get you a lot of points and a lot of passes and all, and all that stuff. So, I mean, I do think part of becoming a good marking dog is experience and part of experience is, learning what you can do and what you can't do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I like the dogs that, that um, see, and, and, and in my, my career and I know what my answer is, but, but if you were to pick there's, do you have an area marker and then you have the pinpoint marker? Um, I prefer if I, if you gave me the choice, I've said it for years and years and years is give me a dog that, that is an, a really, really good area marker all day long as opposed to the pinpoint marker because what I have found, and you may have something a little bit different because we're in the hunt test world and you're in the field trail world, but our pinpoint markers a lot of times never really hunted, hunted very well because they were so arrogant or cocky or, or talented. They would go in they like that bird is, is three feet right of that bush, and they went in there and it wasn't there. And they'd be like, oh boy. And they kind of would lose a little bit of confidence. Um, but I like the area marker because you can't, if you got a really good area marker and they understand how to get in the area and not leave the area, you can't hide a bird from them. What do you think about yeah, that? I don't
3: disagree with that. Um, we've actually, I have a dog right now that I'm just kind of messing with for a month that um, kind of the same, just doesn't know how to hunt. Like, she she drills a lot of marks, and when she doesn't, she just doesn't know how to find them. And uh, so I'm doing a lot of work with trying to get her to slow down and hunt and look for birds and and stick them out. But, yeah, I mean, you know, that pinpoint marker might win you an extra trial here and there. But the one that's going to get under the arc, it's going to acknowledge where the gun stood, or find that holding blind on the really difficult deal and know how to hunt off of that, Blind or off of that gunner to get that bird, they're gonna get you through more tests for sure.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I agree with that. So, with that being said, you just said under the arc, that's a perfect segue into the ever-going argument that I hear about all the time, and it just nauseates me. Would you, can you? So you have a couple different type of marking dogs. You have the dogs that mark inside out. And you have the dogs that mark outside in. So, give me your opinion. I know what mine is, and mine is the exact same as yours. Give me what. Give me your opinion and your insight on the outside in, the inside out. Can you? Should you make them outside in, or should you just let them go and do their thing? As long as they're on the right side of the gun. Yada yada yada. So what do, what uh, do you Chris, before
0: he answers show? that, can you give a little explanation for us amateurs? What you mean by inside out versus outside in? Can you a quick description?
1: Yeah, okay, so let's just say a bird is, it, whether it's a hunt test mark or field trial mark, marks or marks, and it's thrown right to left. So an outside-in marking dog will go, if the bird's at 12 o'clock and you're you're leaving at 6, so the bird's at 12 o'clock, that, that dog is going to go to like 11 o'clock. So it was thrown from 2 o'clock to 12 o'clock. You're at 6 o'clock, that dog is going to go to 11 o'clock, and mark it from the outside to the inside. If the inside-outside dog, the dog realizes the gun's at 2 o'clock, so it's going to probably run at like 1 o'clock and, and keep that relationship between the bird and the gun and find that bird. And there's this ever-going argument out there that you should make your dogs outside-inside markers because they'll find more birds, because they're more quote-unquote true to the bird and, and all that, I personally, I don't care. I don't make out. I think. I think with a, especially some of the younger dogs that we have. If you try to make them outside, inside markers, you're stopping their momentum. You're you're hurting their confidence. And I don't like it. And I won't do it. I don't care if the dog goes outside to inside or if I don't care if the dog, is between the bird and the gun, as long as it finds the bird. And 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 the people that are trying to make, these dogs outside, inside markers, I think are really hurting their confidence and and their and their want to on these sort of things Ray. ray what do you think on all that because this is an argument you hear all the time
3: i mean everywhere so, you go. yes i i agree with you i used to i don't hear it quite as much anymore but i used to hear it all the time people would say my dog has a problem it runs at the gun so does he end up in the right place yes then you don't have a problem correct i wish i had that problem with all my dogs Uh if i no have kidding. a dog i'm not going to do something to discourage a dog from running outside in you know if if they naturally are a strong at the bird run at the bird or run just outside the bird i'm probably i'm not going to try to do something to change their natural what i would say their natural tendency would be but i would prefer the dog that runs inside out because to me when things start getting tighter that dog You have a better idea of where that dog's going. And I think that's how they can sort out where they've been and what bird they're going for. You know, when we, those dogs that run right at the bird or just outside the bird, you know, imagine you have two pinch marks and they miss that short one by a couple feet outside. Which bird are they going for? And then.
1: That's right. They get lost. You know, Those almost. dogs that,
3: that identify the gun, and and I tend to try, when I'm running, a trial or a test, and actually I've been running my own dog, and uh, she's five for five in master test right now. Um, well, of course she is, <laughs> she's a ray boy. But so when she comes back in, or even if she comes in and looks right out at the bird, or when I had field champions that came in and they'd stare at that bird, especially if there was, it was a critical bird with something else deep of it, I'm going to pull them in and I'm going to identify where that gun stood or where that station was. And then I'm okay. I'll push back out to the bird, but I want to make sure they understand which station or, you know, where, which bird we're going for when I'm lining up for it. I think if you just point them out into space, yeah. right at that bird, you run the risk of missing it a couple of feet outside. And most of the time, unless there's a crosswind that way, there's no information for the dog that's going to help them break down and look for the bird. You get under the ark, you have foot scent, you got the, the gunner scent, you got the gunner that's walked back and forth to pick up birds. You have other dogs that have been under the ark. And, you know, part of, part of that marking is also those dogs understanding how to use that environment and use those little signals to help them. So when, when they go outside that bird and there's no information out there for them, they can become, they can miss it and be gone in a in a blink of an eye.
1: Yeah, I agree with you a hundred percent. That's so you actually, well, say, let's say say you th- that you're throwing a mark hunt, test field trial, don't matter, and your dog is looking out to kind of where the bird was at the general vicinity, maybe a little bit too far right, whatever. You pull that dog so it sees the gun, as long as it's not like a completely hit, retired hidden gun. But you look and and you identify the gun with the dog. Maybe pull a little bit more. If it's a left to right mark, you then you identify the gun. Then you pull it back out to kind of where it was looking. Like, yep, that's it right there. Is that what you kind of? Is that what you're? Yeah, that's me to I'd do? like
3: to get some acknowledgement of where that gun station was. So uh, now yep. again, I, I hate to talk them out of a bird if they're really really positive, but if there's any chance that they're looking outside of it. I'm going to tuck, now I have everything, I, my dogs are mostly two-sided, so when I, you know, most, for me, it's usually pulling them in to where the gun stood, and then I can step back out to, to push them back out again, but whether you're one-sided or two-sided, maybe you got to step up a little bit or pull them a little bit, but it's getting that acknowledgement of where that station was, whether it's retired or the gun's out. Um, I'm going to, most of the time, I'm going to, yeah. especially on a tough key bird, I want to make sure or tight marks. I want to make sure they understand which word we're going for.
1: Yeah, that's, that's, that's good stuff right there for sure. But yeah, we, we hear that argument all the time. And, and, and I know some, I know some people that have tried to, you know, these young dogs, they, they try to make them outside inside markers by, you know, kicking them off and calling them back and or stopping them and handling them out and trying to do all those things. And I think that really hurts the, the want to of these dogs, and I think it really hurts their momentum because in their mind they're never doing yeah, and anything I don't right. Think they,
3: like I said, I think in their mind a lot of times that how they naturally mark is how they make sense out of what they're doing in their head. So if we're starting to try to change that, I mean, yeah. it's just you know it's like trying to change your hunt pattern. I mean, you can to me you can open up a whole box of worms or box of skeletons before you're going to do a lot of good because they don't. I don't think they understand
1: what it is you're trying to change. I I agree with you 110% on that whole deal. So let's, let's talk about a little bit about, let's just say you, you've got a puppy right now. And, and I, I've noticed this with, you know, with some of the dogs that we've started as babies. And, and back in the day when I used to run quals and SRSs and that sort of thing. And I would start some of these young dogs as babies. I did nothing but white coat marks with them for, you know, a year or two years, even, and I noticed, you know, a lot of people are wanting to get really long, really fast because they like to watch their dog run. Um, do you think starting a young dog off like a really long white coat mark, it, it, with a hand, a, you know, person throwing for you? And do you think if you start them, if the let me see if I can explain this right? If the mark is too long, they just run at the gun, and then they push off the gun, whether the gunner steps out to push them out or they. They're running that gun and they go find the bird. Do you think if you get too long, too fast at a young age, you're almost essentially teaching the dog to run straight at that gun instead of the, you know, true to the more true to the bird, if, it, if you were to do shorter marks and, and teach them to stay away oh, from that gun? Oh, a thousand percent.
3: I mean, I think, uh, I think we do. Yeah. Now, dogs do, a lot of dogs have their natural way of marking, but we encourage them or teach them to run at the gun by exactly what you're saying. We, you know, those puppies, yeah. their eyes aren't developed yet. We're throwing, or, you know, you got a tree line, you're throwing something that they don't see as well. They learn to be successful by running out to that gun, to the feet of the gun. And he either, like you said, they might step them out or maybe they hunt around a little bit and then they find it. But in they're they're learning how to be successful at finding the mark by running to the gunner. So, I mean, we we're, we're we're teaching them that right away. Um, so I, with puppies, I like to do shorter marks with longer, make sure real visible bumpers, white bumpers. And I do pretty long throws and just to try to get them, encourage them to run at that, at that fall and use their eyes and
1: not run to the gun. I mean, yeah, exactly. Um, so are you doing that? You want them to see the bumper laying on the ground? Is that like you're 50, 60 yards or are you closer? Are you like in a football field that somebody could use or what kind of terrain and color to start are start with, them, that? I'm
3: fine with them seeing it. Actually, when I start with the little puppies, you know, eight, nine weeks old, we're not talking, you know, they're 20 yards, 10 yards, 20 yards, and I'll use paint rollers so they sit up on the grass nice so they can see them. Um, and then as they're doing starting to do that routinely where they're just running right out to the paint roller so you can start to make it a little bit longer and then graduate to bumpers. And, you know, I kind of use the cover when they can't see it just based on what they're doing. If if I'm having trouble when it's fairly visible and fairly short, I'm not going to make it more difficult. So if I'm getting a puppy that's running right out there and scooping <laughs> up those paint rollers or those, little, those bumpers, then I'm going to start to make it so they don't see it until maybe they get out there, or there's cover on the way. I mean, there's little puppies, it doesn't take much cover for them not to be able to, to see something on the, see something laying on the ground. So, And the other thing I'll do when I start to introduce covers, I'll shorten back up again, because I want, I want that little puppy to be positive. It just yeah. saw something fall right there, and go out there and be confident enough to try to look for it. The further away you are, and then you throw it in cover, and they run out there, and they're not used to cover, and then they're just they're gonna stop and they're gonna look at the gunner and they're gonna look for help. But I want them to start from a young age of running out there and trying to develop. I know this thing landed right here and I'm gonna find it.
1: And, and when you do that, if you see the your young puppy um breaking down early, or or if it's if it's starting to run, you know you've gone. You know you. If everybody does it, I've done. Everybody does it. You you like to want to go. You want to get as far back as possible as quickly as you possibly can. Um, if you start seeing that 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 puppy break down short or start pulling to you because you don't really want us to go. Hey hey hey. Because if it breaks down short, right? Because it, it's going to pull over to you, which in turn it's using you as a crutch to find the bird. So because you've gone a little bit too far too fast, would you fire drill? That puppy out there to keep him away from that yes. gun when they're young like yes. that. Yes, if
3: I'm trying to, when I start to try to get a little further, um, I'm gonna do so. I'm gonna do a fire drill, and the one thing I like to do with the fire drills is, I want to throw that second bumper or bird before they break down. So I want to keep them driving, yes, and sure. I don't like to have the gunner yell. So if you throw that bumper or that bird before they break down. I want them to just see that bumper bird fall out of the air right on top of where that other one is not to draw the attention back to the gunner by yelling now if they're hunting and sometimes you got to do what you got to do to get their attention so they can see it but if I think you know what I want to do a fire drill on this one I'm almost going to predetermine it and and throw a couple of them or throw a second one as they're in route before they break down to keep them driving and to keep their attention out where the bird lands as opposed to the gunner.
1: Yeah, that's 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 great stuff there. And for people that don't understand or know what fire drill is, it's when you send a dog, it can be a puppy or a big dog, it doesn't really matter. And you kick your you say you're throwing the bird right to left and you kick your dog off and, it's, and you're trying to extend the, the, the marking area, you're trying to get the dog to run longer Drive through maybe old falls, scent cones, cover terrain, and, and when that dog is in route, it be like like Roy Ray said, is before it breaks down. You throw another bird or bumper where your previous one at, and you just keep them going. You just keep them going, and they have they have something to, to run to, and then you can back up and maybe repeat that mark without fire drilling to, to keep them out there. But that's a Good way to do, do that, what we're talking about. But I got I got one for you that I heard on a podcast, um, a different podcast. And this was really, really interesting to me. And, and, and I don't know, what, I want to get your opinion on this thing. I was listening to another podcast, and there's another very, very successful field trial trainer from Canada on it. Very successful, won a couple nationals, the whole deal. And he likes to start his young dogs. So so you're you have a little bit of a right to left wind. Let's just say he likes to throw all of his birds into the wind. And what he says that does is let's just say that, that dog is, is between the, the gunner and the bird. So when that dog gets to the gun, it smells that bird on the outside and its first move is to hunt away from the gun to find the bird. Because I know a lot of people, I've seen it happen a bazillion times, where sometimes these dogs' this first move is to hunt towards the gun, and then the next thing you know, you're on the wrong side of the gun. He likes to throw it into the wind, and if it's true to the bird, great. If not, if it's between the gun and the bird, that dog's first move is to hunt away from the gun Because that's where it smells the bird, so he doesn't throw them with the wind to keep them away. He doesn't throw them with the wind to keep them away from the gun. He throws them into the wind to teach them to their first move is away from the gun to hunt. I mean, I think the.
3: I mean, I like the idea behind it. I don't know that them smelling. I'm just trying. You know, I'm just trying to think this through as I'm talking.
1: I've I've been thinking about this for. I cannot wait to get your you anything about this for I, I don't months. know
3: that they're learning to hunt if they smell it and run over to it whether whether they are outside of a bird thrown with the wind or inside I mean I guess I would say I probably tend to throw more birds into the wind than with the than with it, so I mean uh, but I don't think that I did it intentionally thinking that it would teach them to hunt away from the gun. I think I did it as kind of starting as a, at a young age to learn how to kind of fight factors and you know and using that gunner as a barrier to you know they got to fight the wind to stay in front of the gun to get the bird um i, I, yeah. I just don't i mean I think the, the the theory of wanting them to turn away from the gun i like that i just i guess off the top of my head I don't know that them just running out there and smelling it would if, if that would correlate to always turning away from the gun when they when it becomes downwind and they don't smell it
1: yeah I, I don't either that's just it was a very it was a really really interesting conversation, and he had a lot of really good valid points and whom I get to argue with this guy but um it was it was a really good conversation and I can see his point, but I'm with you i didn't I don't know if it actually yeah. teaches them to hunt. Away from the gun, but I, I do, I do understand how to fight the factory, stay between the gun and the bird. That yeah, sort of thing. I, I mean, I don't think um, there's anything wrong the with it. I, I do think it. I mean, certainly, I don't
3: think there's anything wrong with it. I think, to me, getting those puppies, especially when you start to have a little bit of cover and having it down when where they really have to hunt. I mean, to me, in my experience, that's been the best thing to really teach them how to hunt a bird. Is having it downwind and making them go in and dig it out, or having to hunt and be successful, versus smelling it as they approach
1: it. Yeah, yeah. And let's let's talk about um, let's talk about. And I know there's a lot of people they don't have help. But let's talk about building a marking dog as as far as a young dog to a big dog. There's a lot of lot of of, of different theories out there. And I'm sure yours and I are probably about the same. But I know a lot of, um, and it's a lot of, it, it's the, some of the HR people, HRC people are more prone to it than the AKC people. But the, a lot of the HRC people I see when I, I try to help them with their young dogs, they try to keep their wingers hidden. They got holding blinds up. They try to do everything in their power to keep that, 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 um, that gun completely hidden from the dog. So, what do you think about when you're building your baby young dog, and, and and Elliot's got Georgie coming up, and he's training with his HRC club, and he says, "Hey, I want you to stand out and throw me this bergs. I want him to, I want her to look out there and, and see where she's going instead of hiding everything from her." What do you think? Is I think it's detrimental to a baby dog to hide to try to hide everything, especially I mean, just because you're in an HRC and that's what they do, I don't think that's a great way to develop a a young marking dog by no means. Yeah, what, I feel what is your pretty strongly. Now, I don't
3: have the experience making grand, you know, grand champions and mass, as many master hunters and all that. But I, I feel pretty strongly that they, if I w- if that was my goal, I would teach them how to mark with gunners, visible gunners, white jackets, and teach them the concepts because I think having the gun as a target is a valuable way for them to learn and gain experience and have some have a little bit of a barrier and or be able to help if the dog overruns it you know you hand you're starting to handle and then the dog misses the bird where you can handle or where you can help them excuse me and i think it's a very valuable tool to have a gunner out in the field and have visible gunners out in the field and i would want to uh, i think yeah i, I would want to develop yeah. all those con- those marking concepts And then just then start to start to hide them after the fact. I I think it's easier to I think it's much easier to to take the guns away after they know they're after they learn that stuff than it is to try to put them in after the fact.
2: This episode is brought to you by Dave, a banking app that's leveling the financial playing field, because when you download Dave, you could get up to five hundred dollars in five minutes or less. No credit check, no late
0: fees. It's part of Dave's extra cash account. Advance the money you need with no interest and then
2: settle up later. Download Dave today at dave.com slash Spotify. For terms and conditions, go to dave.com slash legal. Eligibility criteria and instant transfer fees apply. Banking services provided by Evolve, member FDIC. ABC Friday. It just takes one great idea to change your life. Shark Tank returns for its 15th season. I
3: didn't know I was going to cry right now.
2: With new guest sharks. Jason Blum of Blumhouse. Michael Rubin of Fanatics. And Candace Nelson of Sprinkles Cupcakes.
3: I'm going to make you an offer.
1: On a scale of 1 to 10. I've never seen anything like this on Shark Tank. This season is a 15.
3: I totally believe in you. Shark Tank premieres Friday on ABC and stream on Hulu.
1: Yeah, I, I've, I've even been to some of the club training days. Um, this has been a long time ago, but, you know, I, I went and helped a few times. And those club training days, and, and, and nine times out of ten, it's, it's HRC things. And I'm not bagging on HRC. I'm just, I'm just trying to help the audience understand this. But they they'll have 10 or 15 people at the line watching and trying to help. And they'll have four wingers in the field completely hidden with nobody at the winger. So I always ask them, I said, Well, why don't we have somebody out there to hand throw and let's let's nope, they're gonna see that at a test. They're coming out of wingers. That's how we're gonna do it. And I and I think that way of thinking is really, really detrimental, especially if you want something more than a season in, in an HRCH. I think I, I think if you want to play the grand or the national or QAA or any of those sort of things, I think you're really, really hurting those dogs by by having that closed mindset that, Hey, we're going to run, you know, our hunt tests are going to be with hidden wingers. So we're going to teach. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think there's
3: a time to, there's a time to prep for what you're about to see for sure. So, I mean, there comes a time when they have to be exposed to that and, and have to learn how to deal with it. But if I'm, if I'm training and I'm teaching, I, I personally just, I believe it's much easier to get the point across that you need to bank or what you're trying to do in training with a, with a gunner out there. And that's what I did with my dog, kind of coming up.
2: Yeah,
3: you know, she was trained 100% white coats until, you know, I mean, and she had retired guns and all that sort of stuff. But uh, 100% white coats until about two weeks before the first hunt test, and then every, you know, I hit everything. We we hit everything and blue duck calls and did all that stuff to make sure we had the excitement level that you're that you're going to have in the test and just get her prepared to picking out better at picking out holding blinds and some of that sort of stuff. But it certainly has, uh, it's been an easy transition going from training for qualifying. In fact, in between the first and second hunt test, she ran up got a jam in a qualifying and then ran the hunt test another week later. So, you know, I mean, I think it's a, yeah, I think once, when they learn it that way, it's an easy transition.
1: Yeah. I, that's really interesting that you said she was, nothing but white coats for her whole entire life till two weeks for her first master test uh, that that tells you something right there about the 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 importance of guns and teaching the gun relationships and 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 marking concepts and that sort of thing um
0: if i could ask just a, a quick question um i'm relatively new to all this so still some of the terms are <clears throat> i'm i'm not fully aware of so i'm sure some of our listeners amateur listeners are in the same coat are in the same place i'm at if you could just define holding blind versus gun versus retired gun and white coat.
1: Well, I'll do the, the holding blind is just a, it, it's what you see at a hunt test every day. You, you stand in the holding blind before the, you know, the, the judge calls you to the line and, and we do it in training too. We use the holding blinds to hide our gunners and hide our wingers and that sort of thing. It's just kind of a three or four pole, you know, piece of fabric with stakes in it and just takes out in the field and that's that's a holding blind and you know you use it to come to the line and use it out So how's field. that
0: different than a gun um,
1: an exposed.
0: Okay it's so you're the using same the same that's what I thought <laughs> then I thought that was the same thing but it seemed like yeah. you're using them a little different so a, a gun is the same thing as yeah. as a holding blind there's no distinction
1: Yeah a gun could be a person in the field behind a holding blind it could be a, a freestanding person a gun can be a holding blind with a winger behind it. It's anywhere it.
0: the bird gun. is being um, thrown from. So what's a retired from, gun then?
1: Correct. That's when you have a person out there that um, throws the bird. And either that, that when, I, when we say retired, that person goes and hides. Um, it used to be back in the day, you used to be able to hide quite a bit away from the gun where you were throwing it from into a layout blind. They've gotten away from that. But that person will go, so a lot of times I'll do that, um, that person will throw the bird, and then you'll have, maybe you do a double or a triple, and then you turn and you're sent for the go bird. Well, a lot of times that person is retires when that dog is en route to a different mark, and then when it comes back, it's no okay. longer there. Sorry to interrupt, I
0: just want to make sure that our it's, full it's no audience long. is keeping up with <laughs> everything, and I'm sure there's people like me that are still trying to learn all the terms a little
1: it, bit. Yeah, and Ray knows those days when they retired into a layout blind.
3: A few people got stepped on, and then that kind of ended up. But, yeah, Elliot, for the context of this conversation, (laughs) it's mostly, you know, visible gun means a a gunner with a white coat. A hidden gun means a gunner or a, a device, a winger behind a holding blind that the dog doesn't have a visible target to mark off of. And a retired gun would be when the gun is visible, throws the mark, and then goes and hides after the fact. So when the dog comes back and you're trying to get that bird, there, then they're disappeared.
0: Gotcha. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Elliot, do you have any? I can talk. I could talk marking with. Ray, forever. Do you have any questions at all from an amateur standpoint? When it comes I do. To marking I do. And, from, and- from
0: my own perspective, there's times. Uh, I, I've got two main questions. One's about the mentality of a dog, and the other is about problem solving. So I'm having an issue with Georgie overrunning marks. Um, and I don't know what. what do you do if a dog is having issues with marks, what steps do you take for whether the dog's overrunning or maybe um, leaving the area altogether? Just how, how do you, how do you in your training fix those different types of problems? And this, the second question I would have is um, you guys talk a lot about confidence and dog's confidence. What do you do if you see a dog's confidence breaking down? Can their confidence go from one training session to another where they're they do poorly one day and it carries through. So how do you handle the actual technical stuff and then how do you handle the mental aspects of the dog?
3: <laughs> right, right. right
0: like I was <laughs> well,
1: break it down to so break I it down to one
0: you
1: I was kidding and you sat around all day <laughs> that up. So no and, and let's talk about this real quick, Ray, because I know you said something about your dog. You were, you were teaching your young master dog now to stay in the area and, and dig those birds out, if I, if I remember what you said that on that deal. So let's talk about one of the first of 10 Elias bullet points. So let's talk about keeping the dog in that area on a mark and not blowing out. Um, how would you teach that? As as far I know what you're going to say, how would you teach that? Um, to keep that dog in that area. So you mentioned yeah, about it's actually that. another dog, dog that, that I have
3: right now just for a couple weeks. But but yeah, same but oh, okay way. So oh. it depends a little bit on why they're blowing through the through the short bird. So are they blowing through the short bird to run out to a longer gun? Are they just not concentrating? Are they um, are they uptight about it and they just kinda they have their ears back a little bit and they're not comfortable breaking down? So all three of those would be reasons why they would be overrunning short birds. So they'd all have probably a little bit different um, recipe on how I would try to address it. So if they're running, but in general, I would say I would go to shorter marks and shorter marks in a little bit more cover and go to more singles versus multiple marks and trying to throw birds in hard to find places. So, when they get to the area, they really have to look for it and they have to put on, they have to put on a hunt to be successful. Now, if the dog is, I think that would work if the dog is uptight or if the dog is just like not concentrating. Um, If the dog is just trying to take off for another bird, then, then it's a, then it's a little bit of a discipline deal to me versus just overrunning short birds.
0: Yeah. What if they're overriding the longer bird? What if they're it's not a short bird? What if it's like a hundred to hundred and fifty yard mark and they're consistently overrunning those by let's say fifty yards. Is there something else? Or they're behind, just blowing is there something through? else
3: behind it or are they just running out in no. the open field?
0: Yeah. Just just, just excited cruising right through it. And- right.
1: And, Elliot, is your terrain just a flat Open, no. featureless field with nothing in the back that you can run forever. No. Okay. I mean, I so, are you training by yourself, or are you training with wingers or gunners,
3: throwers? You know, I mean, I you could do everything. I would shorten it up a little bit more. I mean, 150 yards to, to you know isn't terribly far, um, but you could go shorter. I mean, you could shorten it up even more. I've done stuff with use a small orange bumper and do walking singles, you know, 40, 50 yards away and throwing the cover and just trying to get them more positive about where that, where that mark lands and have them going and looking for it. And to me, the, the greater the distance, the less likely you are of them to, especially if you're having some trouble that they're going to go in there, head down, tail up. I know that bird is right here. So that's where I'm going to shorten up the distance and, And just try to make it throw stuff in heavier cover, throw it in a, um, if you have safe, safe ditches you can use to throw a bird in a ditch. Um, We use a drill called the Ontario 10-step, which is another discussion, but uh, just things basically to try to, try to elicit a hunt out of that dog and have them comfortable breaking down and looking for that bird or that bumper and having success when they do it is the key. Does confidence
0: play a lot into this? Does what do you confidence think play thinking? a lot into this? Are these a hand in hand issue where if they get in they have some a couple failures and that and that gets gets to them mentally and it takes a while for them to
3: I, shake I that, that off? I think on the dog a lot. I mean, if that dog's running out there um ears up and just running because it's having fun and not concentrating, I don't think that's really a confidence issue. If that dog gets really bothered when it doesn't find the bird and all of a sudden you can start to see it act you know acting more nervous it's running with its tail down or its ears back a little bit then that could be a confidence deal and then I want to do more things that they have success and throw some marks that they can find if they're just running out there having fun saying we then I want to try to make them slow down and try to dig the bird out
0: makes sense
1: what, I want to hear you say "whee!" <laughs> you do a pretty good job. Man. What, so what about what about on Elliot's deal there? That you know, I know Georgia. She's a fireball. She flashes daughter. Um, what about salting the area on something like that? Um Bigger hunt area, and just let let her know that hey, you need to come in here and. Yeah, I mean, um,
3: that is certainly, that is something that was done with this little girl that I got here before, before she was here. I mean, it's one of those things that's a little bit, in my mind, it's a little bit like we were just talking about throwing the bird into the wind so they smell it. I mean, you could throw your short birds into the wind and you'd say, and they smell them and you say, oh, look, she's not overrunning your marks anymore. Well, no, she's just smelling the bird. So if just getting to the area gets you the bird immediately, I guess you're trying to start to get the habit of them when they get there. They start to look for it because they're having success and they're finding it. I still feel to some degree that they have to hunt and find it on their own to start to learn to be successful at digging those hard to find birds up. Yeah, yeah, that's a very, very, really, 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 but I really have, good i But I have no problem with doing that, um, with salting I got one. a little while to see if it makes a difference. Don't get me, I'm not saying I wouldn't do it, I'm just, at some point she's going to have to figure it, dig out the birds on her own.
1: Yeah. And and, and Elliot, I know where you live, you? are you, throwing this in, you know, it's pretty humid where you live, How, what's the cover like you're throwing these bumpers in, because I'm going to tell you, it's, it's, if you were to take out my big old master crew and grand crew and you throw bumpers and in, in, in thicker cover for my 30 dogs that are that level, it's going to be a disaster. Right. All
0: day. Uh, probably right probably about uh, shin, shin deep, and I will say the, it's a pretty small sample size, uh, and she, she has overrun these and come back and found them and without my assistance, so it's not like she's completely failing it's just I see a little bit of a pattern yeah. of this developing where she's overrunning um, these marks. But it's like I said, it's not that she's failing on them. She is going she's going about 50 yards too far on a couple of them, works back to it, and does find it.
1: Well, at least she comes back and doesn't just keep going. Well, and the rea- the, the reason
0: I, t- I tied the, the two together, she had a day where there was a double, and the second one on the double, about 150 yards, she got so lost like she never has on a mark before that she was just clueless to i had to finally help her the next day we went and ran marks she acted like i've never seen her act before she ran to the fall and then she just was like running crazy like like she had no idea where it was and so then i i tried to get confidence back in her but it's like it's that day that she got completely lost on a mark it seemed to affect her on the from that time forward for some reason because she had never kind of displayed some of the overrunning is she, that I see her doing. That's why I wondered if
1: it wasn't like, it wasn't like an intelligent hunt. It was more of a panicky, just running around. Yes. And the
0: next out. time we went out, that's how she did it on about three yeah. marks in a row. It's like, Oh, I don't know where it is. I'm panicking. And she just started running off. So is, and like, I like, what? like, I've never seen her do it. Is, I is
3: she a, is she sure, a pretty yeah. normally a pretty talent? Like she doesn't have a lot of trouble. She finds birds pretty regularly, pretty easily. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yes. She's never had any problems until
3: this. uh, I would say, and I think this is true of an advanced dog. You can tell me what you think, Chris. You know, whether it's a grand dog or a master national dog, or we used to see it a lot with our field trial dogs, those dogs have to learn to work through things when they're in a little bit of a position of uncertainty. If everything comes, if we keep things so routine for them that they never have any conflict or they never have any like you're talking about they never get lost then when they do it's like the wheels come off because they've never been in that position before and I'm not saying you go out and you set them up to make mistakes or to fail but I'm saying that there's times when you have to push a little bit when they're doing well and put them in a little bit of a uncertainty once in a while and and not throw them under the bus by using a lot of pressure or correction when they do make a mistake, but helping them out and letting them kind of learn, like, "Hey, every, you know, you can trust me. Everything's going to be all right. We can work through this." But you're not going to be a hundred percent sure where every bird is in your entire life.
1: Yeah, teach them to be a problem solver. Um, and if they're not, they're, it's a, it's a because she's got a big motor, because it can it can blow yeah, up in a hurry. Definitely. Um, let, let's talk about um, check down birds. And check down birds are relative. Check down bird in a hunt test isn't as short as a check down bird in a field trial, but it's still a check down bird. Um, let's talk about teaching a dog and the philosophy on a dog to and I, and how to correct the dog. Um, if, if you let's just say you're running a double or a triple, it doesn't really even matter. And what a check-down bird is, everybody, it's a real short bird, um, and short's relative. If you're in a field trial, you might have a 300-yard go bird, and your short check-down bird's 100. And if you're at a hunt test, your short check-down bird, maybe 25 or 30, after you've picked up a 150, 200-yard bird. Um, in training, let's talk about how to teach a dog and, and, and what a dog should be should be thinking and its characteristics coming into a short check-down bird And how to correct that. And I've seen a lot of people, you know, they they work on these short check down birds. So their dog goes out and gets a mark or two and then comes back. And, you know, the first bird out was just a short check down bird. Now it's got to come in. It's gone 150, 200 yards, however far you went. And now you're coming down in and your dog has got to, you know, win at your back. Nothing really to help it. um, Really well-placed short check down bird. So the dog just went long and now it's coming in to get this short check down bird. I've seen people that the dog blows through there, whether there's nothing behind it, and they'll just lose their mind and start lighting it up with the collar and screaming and yelling. And I personally think that's not the way to do it um, or even stop the dog because a dog that's got to be, you know, to come in and get that short bird has got to be really comfortable and got to be confident and comfortable. And I don't like, when my dogs miss those short check numbers, I've done this in the past, I I blew a whistle and I'd get onto the collar a little bit and I'd call them in, and I'd get on the whistle, and call them in, and then I it would cause my dogs to pop. Even they would they would now they would be nervous about going to that short check down bird, and they would blow through it and they would just pop. And I'm going to tell you I did this years and years and years ago and I learned my lesson the hard way. Now all I do is if they go through the area of the check down bird. I do one of two things. I have the gunner help, go, hey, 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 and just pull the dog back, and then once it turns and moves back towards the bird, I just have them stop and let the dog find it. Or I blow the whistle, but I don't stop them with the whistle and break their momentum because I don't want them to pop after they went past it. I just go, and and they just turn around and I leave them alone. Uh, Ray, what do you think on all that? First of all,
3: I'd agree. I don't think pressure is the way to make them better at it because – um, the key with, you know, those checkdowns, a lot of times we have ch- with the checkdowns is there may be another longer bird as well. So they have to be disciplined enough to go for the bird you want, but then they have to be relaxed enough to look for it. So adding pressure to me is, does not help with any relaxation. So now it dep- if we're talking no. about a selection issue meaning that there's another longer bird still on the ground and I'm trying to get them to go for the short bird, if they just blatantly disregard where I'm asking them to go and take off for the longer bird, I might stop and call them back. I'm typically not going to use pressure. I might have the gun stand back up or, or simplify a little bit. Um, I'm okay with gun help. I, I, tend to, I tend to use more gun help when I feel like the dog's giving me effort cuz so if they go in there and they kind of they try to look for it but maybe yeah. they're just not quite successful then I'm going to be quicker to help that dog out because they're showing me they're trying. If they just go blow through, you know, without even trying to look for it, I may call back and maybe rethrow, maybe have the gun stand up. I wouldn't just keep resending without doing something to simplify um, because if, I do feel like they get they learn better from doing it by from your side versus from out in the field but I certainly am not a, not saying that I recall every time. Um, the handling I personally have not done the just blow the whistle and have them come in like you're talking about. I know several people that do Danny farmer does it. Uh, Chris Ledford does it they just they blow the come in whistle those are two highly successful trainers um, I just personally I tend to stop them because I want to stabilize the response so I just try to stop them let them catch their breath and then do the come in and then if they won't come in on a come in whistle then you can either try again or potentially treat it like a cast refusal for refusal to come back but In general, adding more pressure, especially if they're a little bit unsure, is going to certainly make it worse. And if I'm going to call back in that situation, I'm going to do something to simplify the test.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've always always scared me to, like like you said, to blow your whistle, like blow the stop whistle and break that momentum and and call them in. That's always scared me because I screwed up a bazillion years ago, and I caused some popping issues when that (laughs) dog even knew it missed it and or even smelled it, knew it missed it Mm -mm. it would pop and not even come in. So that's always scared me to blow that sit whistle to develop that popping problem. I just, that's why I just blow that come in whistle and And just turn on, just come in and I let off on it and they kind of figure it out. Yeah. I think part of what you're talking, you said
3: when you, when you're having that issue, you're also adding collar pressure.
1: So that could, okay well I did and I did not I did them both different ways and and it's just to me when I when I would blow that sit whistle even just stopping them would just mm-hmm. it would make them almost nervous like they screwed up but you're right the, the collar pressure I started with that and that was uh, that I was taught by that by somebody else and I was it was a long long, long 20 mm-hmm. years ago and that was not that's not how to do. adding pressure on a short check down bird for a dog to come in is not the way to do it. I can yeah, promise you and that then that.
3: The other thing so, on top of that, too, which I, are- I would add to the um, whether you're calling back, helping, stopping or just coming, you know, everything as a trainer, your job is also you have to monitor your success levels and you have to your dogs, you're going to have to read your dog's body language and are they starting to get a little bit uptight about it? Are they going in there looking for them aggressively or are they lining through? All those things can dictate how you want to address it and so if I have a dog that's acting like they could get a little uptight I'm going to try, I'm going to do more singles I'm going to do things to have more success I'm going to maybe leave the gun out versus having it hidden I'm going to do things to Make sure I manage my success levels so they're doing plenty of them right and not just having failure after failure after failure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Um, did we answer all your questions? Yeah.
0: I, 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 think, I think you did. Yeah. Um, I, I would like right. to hear a little more just about confidence level. You guys talk a lot about a hero over time. Talking about a dog's confidence, um, I would like to hear more about monitoring that and and how how much that goes into what you're doing with the dog on marks and with your how much you're monitoring their state of mind. I guess even more than confidence.
1: I, I think now let me talk real real quick here, right? I'll let you take over. I, I think a lot of of amateur trainers put too much emphasis in, on the dog being confident all the time and successful all the time because they don't want to drive home on a Sunday afternoon after training and go, oh my God, my dog's terrible just because it had a rough training day. That's why it's called training. And I don't think a dog can always be successful. I don't think it always can be positive. I don't. I think they need to have failure. And then they need to have, you need to put them in a rough spot. And then you need to show them how to get out of that rough spot. And then you need to show them how to be successful. Because if if they're, if they are constantly successful, and, and Ray alluded this earlier, they have zero problem solving because they've never had to solve a problem. So we've got to put these dogs, even the even more advanced dogs that they get, you've got to put them in places where they're going to be unsuccessful and then you've got to teach them how to be successful in those situations so that when they do get into that situation, like George, you can't find a mark, the wheels just don't fall off and, she, and and her brain, brain doesn't explode. And she's like, you know, what? I've seen this before. This is just how you do this. is how you fix it. And so then her confidence is, she doesn't lose her confidence quite as easy because she's been successful, successful in tight spots. So I think you need to be unsuccessful and teach them how to be successful to, to Make them be successful if that makes sure sense. yeah Good I mean guys. I definitely I think dogs Ray, learn do think? from
3: episodes of success and failure for sure, and I think that to me goes all the way back to when we're in the yard and or if we're trying when we're trying to shape any sort of behavior from um, you know from basics through transition to advanced work, um, which that's a whole nother we could talk a whole nother hour just on that sort of stuff, but I, I certainly think that mm. they learn from both. And I think to me, I didn't tend to use the word confidence as much, but I would say I monitor their success rates. I think the dog that's more successful in turn is going to be more confident, right? The dog that gets in trouble every all day every day is going to be yep. less confident depending on their temperament, right? So temperament plays a factor in if I'm challenging or trying to have success. If I have a fire-breathing dragon that just, he doesn't care, he's, you know, I, I don't mind if he gets, has a little less success. If I have a little more sensitive dog, a little more cautious, you know, I'm going to try to get them to, to do more things right, and I'm going to do that through my test design and the order I shoot the birds. So every time I have three gunners out in the field, I'm not doing a triple. You know, so we can do singles. We can do a single and a double or a double and a single, and we can do things to mold the test or change the test to what we feel the appropriate challenge for that dog is so there are plenty of times in training when we had 20 24 dogs and 16 of them are open dogs and I might run have three guns in the field and we might run the test three or four different ways depending on how I felt that dog what the appropriate challenge was and what they had done the day before we we used to take we took notes on every dog every setup every day So if something was starting to develop, I started to see Georgie, you know, Georgie's been struggling on her short birds here lately. I can go back and look at my notes and I could see when it started, what test it was, were we challenging, maybe we weren't challenging enough. You know, maybe she needs to go through a period of time where we challenge her a little bit more to make her try to figure this out on her own. Maybe she's getting a little uptight, so we need to simplify for a period of time and get her... You know, getting those birds on her own pretty good before we start to challenge again. So, all that is dictated by, I think, the dog's temperament and what they've done on those sorts of tests leading up to that specific day of training.
0: What I hear you saying, correct me if I'm wrong, is you're really looking for a diversity of experience. That it's really more of a mentally tough dog than it is a confident dog.
3: Mm, I don't. I'm... I guess, to, I, I guess to me it's balance. Like that dog has to have a – they have to be mentally balanced. They have to – if you want them real relaxed and go in and look for a bird and be happy, they can do that. And if you need them to swim down to the end of the pond and they don't really remember it, they can do that. So I think all these things that we're talking about and how we manage success rates and the tests that we set up is all – and the, the success and failure is all trying to get a, the grand scheme of things, I want a balanced dog. I want the, that dog that I can get the long bird or the short bird, and I can help them by my communication. And they're mentally, you know, they're not worried about one or the other. They're, they're free thinking, they can solve things on their own, and they're balanced and disciplined. And that's a hard balance, I mean, that's a hard, it takes years to get to that point.
1: Okay, Ray, I got let's do one more, and then we'll get you out of here for the next episode. Um, it, this is always a discussion when we train our training groups, and I have people up here to train. and there's always that underlying thing of never handle on a mark, never handle on a mark, never handle on a mark. Um, which I, I think is wrong, my personal opinion. So give me the scenario. When, when should you handle on a mark? When should you handle en route to a mark? And what, what makes you decide when to handle the dog, when not to handle the dog? So let's just say, let's just let's do this first scenario where you're running, you're trying to teach a dog to fight the factor, fight the factor, and it's a, it's a crosswind mark, and your dog is prone to fading with the wind, Give me the sequence. I know you're going to say it it varies per dog and blah, blah, blah. So give me the sequence where you maybe fire drill the dog to help the dog and not break its momentum. Give me the sequence where maybe you handle online to fight the factor and maybe some of the corrections of that. Let's do that one first.
3: Okay. So if I'm doing a longer mark with a crosswind, um, I'm going to fire drill when I have a dog that isn't handling Right when I have a young dog, I want to keep them from fading with the wind. Uh, I want them to just to kind of learn to stay out there in front of that gun. That's where the fire drill to me is going to come in. Uh, once they can handle, I'm going to handle them for failing a factor, um, which you know kind of goes with the broader topic of when to handle and when to help. But on a long bird, I'm going to handle. I'm going to handle a dog that's failing a factor. On a mark and I'm gonna handle when I read that they have made the commitment to do the wrong thing. So that long crosswind bird, uh, you know maybe it's a 300 yard mark and 150 yards, I can see them fading behind that gun and they're committed to going to, to the wrong side. I'm gonna stop and I'm gonna cast and then the, you know how I res- if they take the cast great, if I have a cast refusal, Depending on the age and stage, it may be a, a one more cast, or it may be a, a stop, and then give a nick for a cast refusal. Repeat the cast. Um, kind of the same. I kind of use that as my when, when I feel like they're not going to recover, when they can't recover, or when they've committed, when they've committed to making the mistake, to fail the factor, is when I'm going to handle.
1: Yeah. So this is a really good topic because. The other day, um, we had a training group here. We have a training group every week here called the Ladies of FLK, and there's a bunch of ladies from Colorado that come up. There's a group of them, and we have a ball. And we we were training on some really, really technical water the other day, and it was really technical. And, and we, I was running blinds, and they were watching me run blinds, and I was helping them with their dogs. And I would see my dogs. We, there was multiple points they had to pass and stay off of and, and, and that sort of thing, get on, stay off. And when I was in route to my, and I was running blind retrieves, we weren't running much, we were running blinds. And when that dog, when I, what I would do with my dogs is when they're in route to that, to the, to the blind, you know, they had all these decisions to be made, right? So they would, let's just say they would make a really, really good decision, and they'd go past the first point, and they'd be going at the second point. And the second, the second I saw them commit to the land, I would blow the sit whistle, they'd still be in the water. And I would have them back online around the factor and teach them to do that. And the, one of the ladies asked, she said, why don't you let them get up on the land and, 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 quote, unquote, burn them off the land and start again? And I said, well, I don't do that because then if you, you need know, to have a dog that gets out, it will not get out. It's scared to death to make that because it's already got. Now they think the land is hot. So what I was telling them, I want, I want my dogs to think the second they made that decision, I want to tell them their decision was wrong. I'm going to show you the right way out, right way around it. What do you think about that? Yeah, I agree 100%.
3: I I don't like to. Marks
1: and blinds, marks and blinds. It doesn't really matter. Yes. The second they make that decision, you teach them that's the wrong decision. You don't teach them that's the wrong spot to go.
3: Correct. I think, and that's the difference when we talk about
1: building a dog that is
3: um, kind of a free thinking, a problem solver. If you just correct a dog for being somewhere repeatedly or correct on the first whistle, I think you create dogs that are afraid of consequences. So you make yep. the shoreline a hot spot. You make or you can and that's where you can really see if you want to use the term confidence, you can really see a dog lose their confidence or lose their their some of their desire because they start becoming worried about what's about to happen instead of making the right decision. So I believe doing it the way you do where you stop them and then you can correct for a cast refusal. And I don't think that's going to hurt attitude as much because you've just showed them the way out and you've told them what not to do and they still do it. That's a black and white scenario versus just letting a dog say swim for 50 yards and then crucified for hitting
1: the, hitting the shoreline.
3: How does that dog know? What if you only wanted them 10 yards further? How is that dog going to know the difference?
1: Yeah, and that's what I was telling them. I'm like, now I, I told them, because they've trained in a lot of other groups, that they let them get on the land, and then, you know, they burn them off the land. And I was trying to tell them, hey, I'm trying to teach a thinking dog. And and the, so in my mind, when they think that they've made that decision, that's their decision, and instead of getting up there and crucifying for it, I, I try to change their thought process so that they think their way through these things. Whether they're running marks or blinds, it's the, to me. It's the exact same correction in, in the philosophy we want to do.
3: Yeah, and it's it's about making them make the right decision and not being afraid of the consequence. And, Correct, and I think that's, that's how you do that. You when great, they make the wrong choice, because you think about any everything else that we do, when we allow that dog to continue on in their in their line on the line they're on or the route that they're on, we're telling them they're doing the right thing, right? You throw a mark on land. 400 yards away and if they're going out there the whole time you don't stop them they're doing the right thing or same thing so to me if if you're going to start letting them go places when you when that should be telling them they're doing the right thing and then you stop them and get them in trouble that's when you can really start to make them nervous or uptight and afraid of like you said afraid to get out of the water or you lose that balance completely that we we need that these advanced dogs need, because sometimes they got to be willing to get in the water right away and swim. Sometimes they got to cut a little corner and there's even times where they got to be willing to miss a little bit of water. And if every time those dogs are getting in trouble for just being somewhere, you're going to have an incredibly hard time achieving any sort of balance.
1: Yeah, for sure. And, And a lot of times, you know, a lot of people can't wait to get on tech water to do marks and blinds and that sort of thing. And and if, if you're getting this these dogs are in trouble for getting on every point or making every wrong decision and they get overcorrected, the next thing you know you have a dog that walks up to a tech pond and they just hang their head and they're like, Nope, I'm done. Right? they're defeated before they already get there because that tech pond is makes them so nervous. Just the look of it makes them scared. You know, and that's overcorrection on that situation. One more thing. Let's be done. When do you handle on a mark? When do you not handle on a mark?
3: So, I mean, we just kind of we just kind of touched on it a little bit there, that, that scenario with the, the crosswind. Um, I tend to handle when a dog is failing a factor. I don't like, in general, once the dogs are handling and they're through all that stuff, I don't like to have the guns bail them out if they're failing a factor. If, if something's neutral, like they just overrun a bird, or uh, they try to, f- they, uh, they go in and they look for it and they can't quite find it. It's downwind, there's no, they're not cheating or, or missing something to get there. I'll have the gun help. They gave me the effort, they're, they're not doing anything wrong other than just not quite finding the bird. But if I have a, pump, a piece of water, terrain, cover, wind yeah, yeah. that the dog is obviously failing to go to the wrong area, I'm going to handle it. And I think part of, you know, this was about marking, but part of dogs learning how to mark is also learning how to fight factors. And I think you have to, you run blinds and you handle to teach dogs how to run straight and fight factors.
1: Yeah. You know, and you got the, what about that young, and I know our answers is going to be the same probably, but that young dog or that dog that's not quite as, you know, I don't want to say confident, but just, He's kind of a weenie type dog, and you throw a nice good long mark out there, but it, it's it's not really looking for the mark, but it's kind of hugging the gun, it's kind of hunting around the gun, you know, it kind of acts like it's hunting, but it's not hunting, and it's not really looking for the bird, but it's just kind of hanging around the gun. I know a lot of people that'll, that'll, you know, throw another bird out of a winger, or they'll have the gunner help to push that dog out, which I think is wrong. Because that's what it's asking, that's what it wants to do. Um, What my correction was on this whole deal, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, if it does that and and it's hanging around that gun and just kind of messing around, I'll stop the dog and call it out of there and call it back to me, maybe even halfway, and then I'll handle to push that dog back out. I'll handle to push that dog back out, and I'll handle into that bird to teach that dog to stay away from that gun, and then what I'll do after that is I will have that gun rethrow, and then I'll just tr- toss a bird off to the side from my side. And so now I'll, I'll pick that bird up and I'll come out I'll punch that dog out there to that bird again. After I sh- already explained to him, I-, I don't want you around that gun.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. What do you think about doing something like that? I mean, because w- that's what they want to do. They want that gun to help them. Right.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's got kind of, to, that's kind of a, uh... I agree with, I agree that they're looking, they want the crutch of that gun to help them. So, or the the mistake they've made is being too close to the gun. So
1: having the gun And they're help, not giving you a ton of effort. They're not really, they're not giving you a ton of effort, like you were talking about. They're not giving you a ton of yeah. effort. They're just like, oh, I'm just going to stay here until it helps me.
3: Yeah, I mean, and that, I, yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think, now there's the same scenario, you get a real long flyer and you see those dogs that won't hunt off of the gun that hunt near the gun on a long flyer and people's yep. tendency is to help them. Well, I think you just, the whole failure was, uh, the whole failure was hunting too close to the gun. And then when you have the gun stand up and help them, you're just reconfirming not to hunt away from the gun. So that's another situation where I would handle the dog versus helping them. You know, I think a dog like you're talking about, that's a little, like you said, he's a little bit of a weenie. I mean, I think that's, I, I, I don't like the just bailing them out with the gun help like you're talking about, but I'd probably that's a dog that I would probably pay attention on some success rates and try to maybe simplify. I, I don't like to reduce my my standard, but I will reduce the level of difficulty. Right. So meaning yeah. if I have a dog Simple that's having some true. trouble, and I throw a crosswind mark and they're fading with the wind, I'm not gonna let them fade with the wind because they're having trouble. I'm gonna not put that dog in the situation to fail. So I might. Sim- I'm gonna simplify my task, so I don't have to handle. I might throw a downwind, but I'm not gonna let a dog fail a factor to get a bird because they're need more confidence, so to speak. I want they have. If I put yeah. the factor in front of them, they have to. They're gonna have to uphold my standard.
1: Um, and yeah, and then in order to keep your standard higher, you don't make the factor quite as difficult. Correct so that dog can be more successful, but your standard is still real high. You just simplify your factor, and then you gradually move your difficulty of factor higher and higher and higher as you see the dog handling the situation. That's better. correct. Correct. Yep. Yeah. And, okay.
3: you know, as far I tend to not repeat a whole lot, um, I think dogs, like the, the dogs we had, they just weren't used to it. So I think a lot of times when we would repeat, they tended to repeat their failure. If if they've been brought up in a system where they're used to it, like you you know, um, like you're talking, to, you know, like you you handle the dog and then you repeated it. If they're used to that, then I, I think that's a good that's certainly a good out. Oh, sorry, I just dropped my phone. Um, that's a good outcome to have if they're gonna if you can do that the the second time and have them give you the proper response.
1: Yeah, and I when I repeat things, unless it's like a cheating single or if it was really, really bad, when I repeat things, I like to add something to it. So if I have a dog that struggled on a mark, um, I may re-throw that mark, and then I may go and run a blind, come back, and, and try to pick up that mark. Or I may throw that mark, you know, throw a mark from my side, pick up that mark, run a blind, come back, and try to get that mark. I try to add something to right. it instead of just running right back to it, unless it's a young dog, of course, or like a cheating type single, I like to add a little bit more difficulty to see if it's done anything.
3: Yeah. And that's where I think that I think come, you know, a dog coming up in the system where you do that from the get go, you know, they learn how to do that right from the get go. That makes a lot of sense. I think if I, you know, if if I took, um, one of my, took my dog in just because she's not used to it. If I tried to do that, I'd probably, she'd probably repeat the failure, but, Um, but if they're used to it, I certainly think that works. Um, and you know, the other thing I'll say part of when I was spoiled, I mean, we were spoiled with all the grounds we had. So if we had trouble on a short bird, instead of repeating the short bird, we could just, you know, probably move a hundred yards and repeat the same concept. Not everybody has the grounds and means to just move a little bit and keep and repeat the concept. And they have, you know, one field and one pond and that's probably, I think, also where teaching a dog to be able to repeat probably has some more merit there too. When you don't have, you don't have the grounds to just go do the same thing in a different spot over and over and over
1: again. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. It's a good point. Well, Elliot, we could talk about marking till tomorrow morning. Let's um. If you're good with it, let's call this one an episode. This would be yeah, great. let's go
0: ahead and close this one out. Remember, guys, come over to Facebook. It's the Flatlander Kennels Podcast Facebook group. Next episode, we're going to have Ray back on here where we're going to do a Q&A. So we are releasing right now every other Wednesday. So make sure and check back in with us. This next episode is going to be a really, really good one. You guys have anything else?
1: I'm, I'm good,
3: Ray. I'm good. Thank, you know what? I just want to say thank you again to you guys for having me on. And uh, this is great. It's great discussion and some great, great stuff here. So uh, I appreciate it. And uh, feed ProPlan.
1: All right. Feed ProPlan. Okay. Thanks for listening, to everybody. We'll have Ray back on for the next episode. We're going to take a break. Thanks for listening. See you there at the line. Take that in. Got to strike
3: this with the home. and blue color scars